good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking. Should have taken the whole month of August off and hung out on the beach over in San Diego or maybe a, a, a mountain cabin up where or down where it's at least 40 to 50 degrees cooler. You guys thinking that? Oh my goodness, yes, yes. I'm thinking, uh, actually I'm thinking maybe taking off uh, from May to October. Hey, how many think it could be just a little bit hotter and you'd like it even more? Okay, you guys, you guys are sick. We're gonna have, we'll pray for you at the end of the service. So come forward and uh, how many are really thankful for air conditioning? Anybody have uh, no air conditioning in their car, in their car? Oh, that's, that's sad. That's really sad. What? How many really appreciate the fact that we have deodorant? <laughs> Especially for the people sitting around you, huh? Yes, 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 yes. And how many appreciate your very cold favorite beverage? Iced mocha right here, baby. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Cheers. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 17. We're going to work through chapter 17, chapter 18. This is our Brave Heart Teaching Series, Courage in a World of Compromise. People Without Hearts It's the title of this weekend's message. In some ways, the end of Samson is the end of the Judges story. We finished up Samson last week, and yet there's still four chapters left. What I mean is kind of the end of the, the cycle when we looked at Samson. The cycle meaning that the people were consistently going through this crazy cycle. Compromise, compromise in their relationship with God. Actually, it starts with complacency. So they're complacent about God. It leads to compromise. Compromise leads to chaos. Chaos leads to them crying out to God. God sends a judge to rescue them. And they go back into this covenant renewal. We saw that cycle over and over again. And so that cycle ended with Samson. And the earlier passages give us a bird's eye view of things, only saying that the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We saw that some six times um, in the text. Now, these last four chapters of Judges gives us a ground level, kind of zooms in, and we get a detailed view of what life was like in Israel and why God or the kind of spiritual condition God rescued them from. It is why these final chapters have very little mention of God in them. This view of humanity without God is so bleak, these passages are almost never preached upon or even studied. And in fact, next week we do the big finale, and the title of it is People Without a King, and by modern standards, it's deeply repulsive what you're going to find in the last two chapters. And you're, you're probably never going to ever, ever hear anybody ever preach on it. We're going to preach on it. We're going to talk about it because it's in the Bible. We need to talk about it. And not just by modern standards, but also by ancient Israelite standards too. It's, it's deeply repulsive. Going down in Israel's history is an episode of great shame. It's almost disturbing, so we're going to deal with it. We'll talk about it. And uh, so... I look forward to seeing you next week as we finish up this series, but we, we're going to be heading into the book of Galatians after that to talk about God's amazing grace. But these, uh, this is really showing us, these four chapters are showing us, these are people without hearts for God. And so we're going to learn what it means to have a heart for God by looking at what they did and how they lived their lives. Now, as we've said in the last few weeks, it's not what happens to us, 
but what happens where? In us that makes us or breaks us in life. And what happens in us to help us deal with what's happening to us, it has a lot to do with character. And people who have character are first and foremost people who have a heart for God. Even as we said uh, in the last few weeks, people with character are more like thermostats, they're proactive, than thermometers, reactive. And people with godly character are first and foremost have a heart for God because the key to change is not the acts of the will. It's not, we oftentimes, we, we have certain behavior patterns that we don't like and so we try to change those, but those actually don't change by, by looking at them directly. They're, they're the byproduct of something much deeper. The key to change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. And so the deepest issues of our life are really disordered loves. We kind of get, get confused about what's most important to us. Not that, it's, not that we can't love our, our family or love our job, but we tend to love those things too much. They become, becomes idolatry. It becomes a problem in our life. Jesus said to the, really the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, he was criticizing them, and he says, these, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their what is far from me. Their what? Their hearts are far from me. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah, speaking to the people on behalf of God, says, I don't want your sacrifices. That sounds crazy. He said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your hearts. I want your hearts. So what they're saying is that you can, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can come to church, you can drop money in the box, you can do all these things and have your heart a million miles away from God. And that's why I like uh, what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, that God doesn't want something from us, he simply wants us. He wants us, and so what does that mean? What does it mean to have a heart for God? Second Chronicles 17.9, which is our theme verse for our Dare You to Move campaign, it says that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so that he can show his power and presence in, in their behalf. So. I want to have a heart for God. We're going to learn what that means. So would you bow your heads with me before we dive into this text and unpack these notes? Let's pray once again to ask for God's help in this study this morning. Father God, it's your extravagant heart of affection in sending your son to rescue us. It's your infallible words of affirmation in giving us the Bible to daily correct and comfort us. And it's your undivided attention in giving your Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us that makes us want to give our hearts completely and totally back to you. So we pray this morning through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, overtake our hearts, ravish our hearts with your beauty and glory, with your love, and teach us what it means to have hearts fully devoted to you for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this now. So what we're going to do is we're going to, let me walk you through chapters 17 and 18. Unlike we've been doing, we, we'll read a few verses and I'll give you some points, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to walk completely through these two chapters, then we'll come back and I've got 10 big ideas that we're going to walk through to help us understand what it means to have a heart for God. So we'll read some of it and then I'll summarize some of it. So stay with me. Really an interesting story here. So let's begin reading in chapter 17, verse 1. And there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 or 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. 
And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And, she, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And that's, so the husband, or, or so, the, so Micah, the son, ripped off his mom. Mom declares a curse. And then he says, oh, here, I took it, mom. She reverses the curse, blesses him. And she says, I'm gonna give it all to God, but you're gonna see she doesn't actually give it all to God only gives 200 pieces of it to do what? To make these idols so that they can set up a shrine in their home? That's crazy. Yeah, this, these are the Israelites. These are God's people that are doing this. Important for us to see. Verse four, so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod. Ephod is what the priest would wear. So he makes this ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. This is crazy. This is, this is homemade religion here. Because God has already established how he want, where he wants his people to, to worship him and how he wants his people to worship him. And this guy's just making it up. Sounds a little bit like America today. How people just kind of make up, you know, make up their own religion, make up how they think God is. And so it's pretty fascinating here. We are, and, and the Bible over and over again says that we are to worship God as he is, not as we want him to be, as his heart directs, not as our heart suggests. And yet they're doing just the opposite of that. And of course, here's that kind of big summary verse of this whole book. We've seen this over and over again. In fact, it ends with this, the whole book does. In verse six, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, it's like, hey, follow your heart, be true to yourself. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that our culture today? Follow your heart, be true to yourself. And, and when you do that, that's like, remember this analogy, this picture from last week? That's like flying a plane into a storm without being trained with the instruments. You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah, if you're not trained on the instruments and you're flying a plane and you're only kind of trained by kind of looking out to see, oh, there's the ground, we better get up a little bit higher. Oop, there's a mountain, better get over that mountain. But when you're in a storm, you can't see mountains, you can't see the ground, you're not trained with the instruments, therefore you're gonna fly your plane right into the ground. That's what they're doing. These are going by feelings. Follow your heart, be true to yourself. Now, verses seven through 12, let me summarize those real quick here for you. There is this wandering Levite from Bethlehem, kind of wanders into, uh, into Micah's uh, place and home, looking for a place to live, shows up at Micah's home. Micah makes him the newly appointed priest in place of his son. Now, Levites were to be the priest, but we don't know why this guy's wandering around. But he comes in there, and, and so Levite goes, oh, you're a Levite. Okay, then I'll make you the, the priest in my home. And then notice what he says in verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Do you hear what's going on here? There's almost kind of this idea of magic we talked about last week. I got all my ducks in a row. Therefore, God is obligated to bless me. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I drop money in the box. I, I'm really a good person. Therefore, God God owes me. That's what he's saying. 
That's called magic. It's called paganism. It has nothing to do with what the Bible's about, which is grace, the grace of God. That somehow God owes me because I've done all the right things. The whole health and wealth gospel is based on that. When you listen to a lot of uh, different TV preachers, they'll, they'll actually preach almost this kind of magic kind of a thing that's happening. This is what this guy believes. It has to do with paganism. Paganism is where I appease the gods, and then they'll be nice to me. God doesn't operate on that basis. He operates on the basis of grace, unmerited favor, because we could never earn it. And so let's continue on back. To, so that's, that's chapter 17. Now look at chapter 18. This is interesting as the story goes on. It gets even more interesting. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Once again, follow your heart, be true to yourself, no straight edge, nothing to come back to. They're not studying God's word. They don't know what God has for them or they have forgotten what God wants them to do. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in for until then no inheritance among the tribes tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Okay, don't get too, you know, don't feel sorry for them. Oh, poor bunch of people. The Danites, they don't have a home. They don't have a home because they're disobedient to God. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 34, you see that they failed to drive out their enemies that God had commanded them to do. They didn't drive, the, drive out the inhabitants. He said, I, I'm, I want you to drive out the inhabitants. I've given you this land. Drive them out. But they failed to do that. And then they're confined to the hill country. And they're, and they're not liking the hill country. And so they're deciding, hey, let's find another place. They're not being obedient to God. They're being very disobedient. And so they're going to try to find their own land. Now, keep in mind, the land represents for us, their land was the land of milk and honey, milk, strength, Honey, satisfaction. It's a life of strength and satisfaction. We know that that life is found in Christ. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest, John 10, 10. So it's a picture of that. There are enemies in our lives that we have to drive out through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives according to God's word. And if we don't do that, if we're not obedient to him, we step outside of his boundaries and it creates major problems as we will see as we, we walk through the notes. And so, and then from verses... Um, Verses two all the way to verse four. Let me summarize that for you. So the tribe of Dan sends out five able men. By the way, let me just say something about the, the tribe, and I'll say it again as we work through this. The tribe of, of Dan, uh, they are conspicuously absent from the list of tribes of Israel who are in heaven, according to Revelation 7, five through eight. They're not just disobedient. They don't even know the true and living God. They have drifted so far away from God that there's a whole generation that just gets totally wiped out. That's pretty crazy. Now, verses two through four, back to that. So, so the people, so the tribe of Dan sends out five able men to explore the land and they come to lodge in Micah's home and they recognize the voice of this young Levite priest hired by Micah and ask him in verses five and six and they said to him, inquire of, of God, please that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. This guy's not actually a priest, nor is he a prophet, but they're asking for some sort of blessing. You guys know this, that if you can be living in sin and you can find a church or a group of people that will, will embrace you in, in, a, in an unhealthy way and, and actually bless you to say that you can continue on in that sin, and that's what this guy's gonna do. You can find a place here in, in town that will do that. You can find a place in town that can believe right along the way that you believe, even if your beliefs are heretical. There's enough people out there, and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's all do that together and they, in the name of God. And that's what this guy's doing right here, verse 6. And the priest said to them, go in peace. 
the journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. And that's not true. It's not true. He's a false prophet. He's not representing God. And so, I mean, so we could, I mean, so the, the unhealthy thing here is that we could actually gather friends around us that would em, endorse our, our sinfulness rather than to love us in the context of love, challenge us in our sinfulness. So there's that balance, speaking the truth in love so that we have a context of grace and love, security, so that we can speak the hard words to one another so that we can all grow and become more like Christ. And so then in verses 7 to 17, let me summarize this. So the Danites set out. So they, they, they have this blessing from this uh, pseudo-priest or prophet. He says, oh, yeah, God's eyes are on you. And verses 7 through 17, so the Danites set out, find some very spacious and unsuspecting people, and as they get ready uh, to conquering them, they come back to Micah's house. And in verses 18 through 20, let me read this. So that when, when these went into Micah's house, these are the Danites, they took the carved image and the ephod of the household gods and the metal image. The priest said to them, so they're going to rip Micah off of all of his idols. Hey, we need these. And they're also going to take his priest because the priest comes out and challenges him. Say, hey, what are you guys doing? You guys can't take those. And then in verse 19, and they said to him, keep quiet. They're kind of, kind of bullying him. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us as a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? This is just one man. You come with us. We can really give you a lot more stuff. That's that's kind of the idea. They're going to buy him off. He's going to prove to be a hireling. You know what a hireling is, a hired hand? He's not a leader. True leaders cannot be bought off. And then verse 20, mercenary, that's right. Verse 20, and the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with them. Now, let me summarize verses 21 to 23. Micah finds out that his household gods and priests have been taken from him. He gathers up a vigilante posse to track them down. And finally, he he tracks them down and he confronts them in verse 24. And he said, you take my gods that I made in the priest and go away. And what have I left? Now, let me just say something here real quick. That if someone can take your gods, you got the wrong gods. (laughs) And you got a pretty weak god. So if your God can be threatened, blocked, or lost in some way, you, you have a pretty wimpy God. And he's crying. I say, hey, what do I have now? My life is over. And so pretty interesting. Let me summarize verses 25 all the way to verse 29. And the Danites say to him, so he challenged the Danites, Micah, and they say, don't raise your voice at us or we'll come and kill you and your household. <laughs> That's nice. And so he backs down. He realizes Micah sees that they are too strong, so he goes back home. The Danites go on to kill everyone by sword and burn the city. Then they rebuild it and live in it. Totally outside of what God had, had in store for him. Totally different area than what he had established for them. And notice how it ends. This chapter ends, verses 30 and 31. There's some insight here. You can read it through and you'd probably, you might miss it. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of, of Gershon, Sham, son of Moses. What? This is, so this uh, Levite is... Uh, 
part of this uh, lineage of Moses. Man, he's drifted a long ways from God and says, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Here's another thing that's really important. So they set up Micah's carved image and he, that he made and as long, notice this last statement, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. In other words, what is it saying? God had already ordained a place of worship and how to worship, and they just totally ignored it. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, okay, that's the two chapters. So what does that mean? Let's walk through this. There's 10 of these thoughts. Let's go with the first one of what it means to have a heart for God. Number one, why we do what we do is as important as what we do. In fact, it's probably more important. Our motives for what we do are probably more important than what we do. But we tend to look at what we do as opposed to why we do what we do. What prompted Micah to return the money to his mom? Anybody? Yeah, there was probably, there was probably fear because she, she pronounced a curse. He heard his mother utter a curse, chapter 17, verse 2a. Rather than feeling any troubling of his conscience, yeah, I better give this back. Probably fear and or pride. Maybe didn't want to get caught. Okay, I'll go ahead and give it to her before I get found out. He's a man of very weak character, driven by his feelings and desires. Once again, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Now, I talked about this in the, the last couple of weeks, what character is. Character is someone whose behavior is the product of choices based on godly values. So you're flying by the instrument panel of God's word. You're coming back to it. Even when your feelings are kind of running off or you're in the midst of a storm, things don't make sense, you come back to God's word. That's a person of character. A person who lacks character, as we see in this guy, I mean, he's not terribly bad, nor is he terribly good. He ripped off his mom, but he's not terribly, terribly bad because he gave back. But why did he give it back? That's the big question. And a person who lacks character is someone whose behavior is the product of feelings and desires based on the people, things, and circumstances. He's showing that right here. Because, I mean, he ripped his mom off. That's wrong. But then, oh, she pronounces a curse. Oh, I better give this back. See, that's someone that is not, it's not driven by choices based on godly values. This is someone that's based on circumstances and people and feelings and desires and so it's really important to kind of look at our heart and see, hey, why do I do what I do? Because if I'm not doing it from the right reason, it's probably not going to last. There's an interesting story of a little, uh, this dad was trying to get his little boy to, to sit down in the car seat. You know how dangerous that would be. He keeps wanting to unbuckle his seatbelt and stand up because he can't see over the dashboard. Dad said, hey, dude, you need to sit down. So you'll, you'll be like a little rocket that will go right through the front windshield if I have to stop all of a sudden. And the little boy was mad and he was angry and they kind of went back and forth. Finally, he got the little boy to sit down um, in his car seat and his little boy was sitting here. He was angry. He was seething. He was mad. And dad said, why are you mad? Why are you so mad? What's going on? And the little boy looked over at him in a little defiant voice and he said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. Kind of this attitude of defiance. And... Uh, and what's important to understand is that the goal of parenting isn't, isn't behavioral modification. The goal of parenting is heart transformation. The goal of parenting isn't children who obey. The goal of parenting is children who obey out of a love for God, for the glory of God. There's a major difference. 
You're just not trying to get them to jump through the hoop so you can feel better about yourself as a parent. You're wanting them to be motivated because why, why do we exist? Why are we here on this planet Earth? Life's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. You were created by God for God to give glory to God. God is most glorified in us when we're what? Most satisfied in him. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Next point in your notes. So this kind of defines it a little bit of what motivates us. There, there is a major difference between morally restrained will through fear and pride and a supernaturally transformed heart through love. There's a major difference between the two. Fear and pride is self-centeredness. Love is more being God-centered. Judges 17, 2b, the silver is with me. I took it. So what caused Micah to steal the money? Probably fear of pride. Fear that I'm not gonna have enough. Pride, hey, maybe significance. Look what I have. I have 1,100 pieces of silver. What caused him to give it back? Probably fear of pride. That's really interesting. So you can actually help people to be motivated to be moral out of fear and pride. That's extrinsic motivation, it won't last. It's a house of cards. That's why we oftentimes will hear of stories about someone that was very moral and all of a sudden they have this breakdown, maybe a pastor or a politician or a person, and they seem to have a great marriage, a great life and all these things, and all of a sudden they, they run off with their secretary or they do something just, that's just crazy and you go, what? What was going on? Well, maybe they were motivated out of fear and pride and when it didn't pay anymore because fear and pride is self-centeredness. So you can actually kind of hijack your self-centeredness and you can be doing really bad things and start really doing good things, but in the long run it won't last because it's still about you. And it's only when you're motivated out of a love for God, it doesn't matter whether people see me or not. I'm doing this because I live for an audience of one. I'm, I live before the face of God and I love God and all that he did for me so it doesn't matter whether the cameras are on or not. It's not fear and pride. It's not extrinsic motivation. It's intrinsic motivation. It's a heart that's been ravished by the love and the beauty of Jesus. So there's a major difference. Major difference between the two. Because when you motivate people, by the way, that's why I would really encourage you to listen uh, you know, when someone's trying to get you to give money, that this can happen. I, I'll listen to different pastors even in the valley, and sometimes they're trying to get their people to give money out of fear and pride. That's self-centeredness rather than the love of God that would motivate that. Not all of them do that, but there's some that certainly do that. And I've been guilty of that too. And as I've looked back and analyzed that, I realize, wow, that's not good motivation. That's not healthy. That doesn't last in the long run. And it's a house of cards because you haven't dealt with what's fundamentally wrong with all of us and that's self-centeredness. You're actually harnessing the self-centeredness to get people to do moral things. But when it doesn't pay for them to do those moral things anymore, they're gonna cave in. They're not gonna continue to do those moral things. The thing that sustains you to be a moral person, a good person, an honorable person, a person that lives for God is that you are living for that audience of one. You're living all of your life before the face of God. You have a sense of his presence in your heart. You love God. And you want to honor him after all that he's done for you. So we've got to work on the heart. That's the reason why uh, if Exodus, I put Exodus 3 there because it's talking about you shall have no other gods before me because all of our problems are rooted in idolatry. The eighth commandment is stealing. That's what he does. And we violate two through ten of the, of the ten commandments in direct proportion to how we've already violated the first one. Why would he steal? Because he's already violated the first one. Because he's not trusting in God and so he goes 
to stealing the 1,100 pieces of silver thinking maybe this is where I'm going to find my security and significance. So oftentimes we'll say, hey, shame on you. You shouldn't steal. Well, you've got to get to the root of the problem, which is idolatry. That's why I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, where Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So substitutionary atonement, he died for us. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we live our lives for our Savior. He loves us. He gave his life for us. I've never been more alive than when I I gave my life to him. That's what he's talking about here. Number three, we need a healthy balance between grace and truth to bring about the heart change we also desperately need. So this is what brings that change. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It comes as a, as a result of both grace and truth. Back to Judges 17, 2C, and his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. His mom doesn't look or ask for real repentance here. It's it's quite interesting. She doesn't challenge him to examine his own heart and the reason he took the money, which would lead him to a humble need of God's grace and deterrence of the behavior in the future. She curses, and then she reverses the curse and just blesses him. Oh, thank you. Bring it back to me, because she's actually showing that the money was more important than the condition of her son's heart. Because what she should have said is, son, thank you. Thank you for that openness and honesty. And you know, son, I love you. I will always love you. But why did you take that? What's going on? Where's your, where's the deepest loyalty of your heart? Where's the deepest affection of your heart? It should be God and him alone. Something obviously has gotten a hold of your life. Let's talk about this, son. But she doesn't do that. She just immediately blesses him. I got the money back. Now, kind of brings up this whole idea, and we've talked about it over the last few weeks. Ephesians 4.15, it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's how we change. We need this balance between, between truth and love. So truth gives us the structure, and love gives us the security. So we need, those, we need that cradle of security for those moments of vulnerability, don't we, in relationships? So you're probably not gonna listen to me much if you don't think that I really love you. You're gonna probably push it off, you're gonna be defensive, and that's how it is in a relationship. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Rules in the context of relationship will lead to respect. But relationship without rules will lead to disrespect. It's interesting when you look at this, a controlling parent, I started thinking about what is a controlling parent? Controlling parent is low on grace, relationship, and high on rules. They'll push their child away, typically, is what happens. A compliant parent is high on grace and low on truth. So they're very loving, but yet they're not holding their kids accountable. And so really, a Christ-like parent would be high on grace and high on truth. You're going to want to live in the reality, and that's what should have happened there. And, and, and so when we face the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross is this combination of, of grace and truth, isn't it? It's a monument that reminds us that we were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. We are more sinful than we ever dare to think because he had to die for us, and that humbles us, and that rids us of what? Pride. 
But it doesn't stop there. If you stop there, then you don't, you're not taking it for, far enough. And the next part of the, of the cross is that, but he loved us so much he wanted to die for us. I've never been more loved. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So in the context of this, God's, God's love, he loves us just the way we are. That's that unconditional love. And yet he loves us way too much to let us stay that way. Does that make sense? Because he wants to work on our life. So it kind of helps us to understand a little bit that do I have the healthiness and grace and truth in my relationships this way and when I study God's word? We'll get to it more. But this should lead to, to true worship, true worship of God, his heart experience based on the objective truth of God's word impacting every area of our lives. So there should be this change that should impact every area of our life. Verses two through four, Micah's mom is very orthodox in invoking the Lord's name. She actually says, hey, blessed be Yahweh. So she has this faith, this said faith, but when it comes down to her behavior, her behavior contradicts what she's saying out of her mouth. And so, uh, so Micah's mom is very orthodox in invoking the Lord's name, Yahweh, as the source of blessing, verse two. She dedicates the silver to the Lord, verse three, but she only gives 200 pieces out of 1,100, verse four. Micah's mom doesn't really put God first or make him Lord over every part of her life she has a said faith rather than a real faith. So, so what, what we learn here is that, that when we come to worship God, when we read our Bible, when we pray, that it can be all orthodox, it can be truth, but if that truth isn't moving us and stirring us, as we were singing these songs earlier, if it doesn't stir us and we haven't worshiped, or if we come to church and it does stir us, but it doesn't change the way we live outside of these walls and how we relate to people and how we handle our sexuality and our finances and our relationships, then we haven't truly worshiped because worship will, is, is really a, a part of our faith and faith is truth entering the head, igniting the heart and outworking through our hands. It's head, heart, hands. It, it, it impacts every aspect of our life. Once again, remember, if you want change in your life, how do you change? You don't focus on your behavior. Your behavior is a byproduct of your deepest love. What is the deepest love of your life? And so it's really about learning how to love God, to worship him. I gave you some good cross-references there. Let's move on to the next one, number five. We are not to reshape God to fit our hearts in society, but to let God reshape our hearts in society. And that's really what they're doing. They're kind of, this is a man-made religion. Verses three through five of chapter 17, she gave to it to the silversmith to make a carved image and a metal image. This is blatant disregard of the second commandment. We talked about the first commandment of the 10. The second commandment is where it says, no one should make an image of God. Now, why does God say that, to not make an image of him? You mean I can't take a, I can't like paint a picture of Jesus and then sit in front of it and worship that picture? Probably not. Probably shouldn't do that, okay? Why does he say that? Why does he say that we shouldn't have these images that would represent, represent God? Because it's really, uh, you can't express the fullness of God's glory in a picture. If I were to ask all, everybody here to paint a picture of God, you would all have a, a diverse perspective of God, and yet it wouldn't capture the fullness of who God is. And that's the problem that we have. That's the big problem that we, we have in our lives. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as... Anybody ever hear people say that? Well, we live in a whole society that does that. In fact, I think God's more like this, and I'm gonna start a whole new denomination. 
Yeah, that's what I'll do. That's what they're doing. They're doing the very thing right here. And uh, see, what's going on here with this second commandment is a refusal to let God be himself in our lives. We filter out either consciously or consciously things about God that our hearts can't accept. And certainly, I mean, we begin to make God in our own image. We are worshiping a much more comfortable God, but also a non-existent God. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Yee. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So let me ask you this. What is a balanced view of God? How do I know, how do I know that Desert Breeze has a balanced view of God? How do I know that you have a balanced view of God? Well, none of us perfectly, but we certainly want to. So what does that look like? How do I know that there's this balance of grace and truth happening in our lives? This is really, really important question. I was asking my wife this. She really gave some really great answers this last week to me. And then I was asking some of our leaders the same question. Really important question. Is there at Desert Breeze this balance of grace and truth? And is there this balanced view of God? And what does that balanced view of God look like? Turn to the folks sitting around you real quick and just discuss that, okay? See if they can come up with some ideas as it relates to that. That's a, that's a hard question. Do that real quick. Is that a hard question? Some of you are just kind of staring at me. He's <laughs> like, what did he just say? What? Let me ask you guys this question here. If, taking in consideration the people sitting around you, hopefully you're sitting around people that you do know, but do those people around you sometimes contradict you and upset you that you're sitting around? Do the people sitting around you that are close to you, do they sometimes contradict you and upset you? Would you guys, does that happen? Let's be honest, come on, come on, be honest. Yeah, how many would say, yeah, yeah. Would you say that the people that are closest to you, sometimes they contradict me and upset me? Anybody? You've got to, yeah, yeah, point her out. You know what, it ticks me off. My wife does that to me too. I agree with you. They shouldn't do that. But it's because we have a real relationship with a real person. If God never contradicts you or upsets you, you don't have the true and living God. You don't have a real relationship. Oh my goodness, you've made that God up in your own head. Listen, there should be, when we enter into his holiness and understand his holiness, oh my goodness, there should be conviction. We, we should be troubled. We should go, oh my goodness, I fall so short. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. I do too. And yet, oh, and yet, and yet he loves me with his amazing love and grace. There's nothing I can do that will ever keep him from loving me more. So it creates this, it creates something within us that goes, well, I am a long ways. In fact, this is how you know you're really getting to know God. You begin to realize how holy he is and how far removed you are from his holiness. And yet at the same time, oh, his grace has never been sweeter. So there's conviction and yet there's this comfort. 
See, if, if you walked out of here every weekend and you just like felt skippity doo skippity day, wow, that was motivational, Pastor Ray. I kind of rhymed there, didn't I? Oh my goodness, yoo-hoo, goody, goody. Listen, there should be times you walk out of here going, oh my goodness, that, was, that had my name written on it. That was for me. Oh my goodness, God's dealing with me. So how has God been dealing with you lately? There should be something where God is dealing with you and, and working on your life. And yet, and yet, it's not condemnation because that's of the enemy. It's conviction that you run back into his arms of love and he embraces you and he loves you. And you go, you know what? I'm gonna get through this. I'm a mess, but you know what? He's gonna turn this mess into a masterpiece because that's what he specializes in and I'm gonna keep running back to him. So what it does is it should create this sense and, and this awareness of your sinfulness and at the same time of his amazing grace and his love. And so there's this balance. You don't get stuck on the conviction side. You gotta take it all the way to the comfort side that he, he died for us. He loves us. He redeems us. He takes care of us. So you don't beat yourself up. Come running back into his arms. I do, you have to do that daily. It's called repentance. You go, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have thought that. But thank you, Jesus. You love me. Help me not to do those things. Continue to empower me and strengthen me and let me find out what's the root of that. Why would I say that? Why would I do that? Why would I think that? What's happening? And so God begins to challenge us on, on that, unlike Micah's mom did. Micah's mom came, I mean, she should have come in there and said, hey, son, we need to talk. Come on, let's sit down. What's going on? Why would you do that? And so God does that with us too. So it helps us to understand. See, only if, if your God can outrage you and make you struggle in the security of his unconditional love will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. And what happens, and now, now see if this is not correct. When my wife has contradicted me and upset me, she did that for like the first two decades, and I thought that somehow that she didn't love me. <laughs> and I didn't think that she loved me. Well, if you love me, you just agree with everything that I have to say. She goes, no, that's not love. And so we'd kind of go back and forth. And, and what, what, what did we have to do with that contradiction and, and upsetting each other? That's called conflict. And conflict causes you opportunity and gives you opportunity for greater levels of maturity and intimacy. We had to wrestle to deeper levels of intimacy, and that is exactly what God does with us when he challenges us and we, we're confronted with the truth of God's word and we go, oh my goodness. You don't wanna go to a church, you don't wanna hang out with friends that just tell you what you wanna hear all the time. You need people that love you enough to speak the truth to you. And you gotta be cool with it. But see, see, we live in a day and time where people said, and there's people that have left Desert Breeze and said, oh, that church is way too intense. I'm gonna go find a church, what kind of church? That tells you everything you wanna hear? That's scary! That's dangerous. You're not gonna grow. You need something that will challenge you deep and yet in that context of God's amazing love. Okay, why is that? Next point in your notes, number six. Religion is about getting God to serve you. Gospel faith is about getting your, your heart to serve him in every area of your life. Verses seven through 13, Micah makes his own son into a priest and then later finds a Levite to swap priest. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Do you hear the false theology there? I've done all the right things. God is obligated. If this is how God treats people, I did all the right things. And, I, and this is what I experienced. I hear people say that all the time. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're serving God for you, aren't you? See, you're serving God for all the wrong reasons. You're not serving God for him. You're serving God for you. 
out of fear and pride because you think that somehow if I get all the ducks in a row, then he's going to bless me. Oh, pagan God, I'm going to appease you so that I can feel better about life. That's, that's unhealthy. That's heresy. That's not good theology. The Bible over and over again tells us, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 8, 34 through 38, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give in return for his soul? You've heard me say this many times before, following Christ is costly. Following Christ is costly, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Whatever you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you will gain in knowing him and walking with him. Number seven, being a participant rather than a spectator in a healthy local church family is not optional, but a necessity to spiritual health and growth. Where'd you get that, Pastor Ray? That sounds crazy. You just pulled that out of the sky. No, I didn't. Actually, these guys are making up their own religion. They're making up their own denomination. They're doing their own thing. God has an established way of worship in the New Testament. Um, I've given you a lot of verses here. In fact, when the Bible talks about the church in the New Testament, out of the 115 times where it uses this ecclesia, the people that are called out from the world to be his church, 92 times out of that 115, he's talking about local church families like Desert Breeze. We also have in the Bible in Hebrews 10.24, to neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. Acts, by the way, that's wrong. It's not 4, 42 through 47. It's 2, 42 through 47. The early church, those that got saved, got plugged into local church communities. First and second Timothy and Titus, we have the pastoral epistles or letters. We also have uh, leadership qualifications, which is quite interesting uh, with this priest. The Israelites were to worship where and how God had ordained Micah sets up his own sanctuary in priest. The priest has a ministry motivated by self-promotion. He serves whoever will pay him, chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. He tells people what they want to hear, chapter 18, verse 6. He moves on to more impressive things, chapter 18, verses uh, 19 through 20. And then they set up Micah's carved image as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. It's saying, hey, God has a way that he wants us to worship. And so in the New Testament, that's part of being a part of a local church family. And so when you look for a healthy church family, you obviously are going to look for their statement of faith. Do they embrace the essentials of the Christian faith? You look at their their structure. Is it a church that's led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons? And then you look at their strategy. Are they just gathering a crowd? Are they truly making disciples? And then the last one would be style. That's the first one that we typically look at. Wow, it's a great church. They have great music, and the pastor's really funny or whatever it might be, and I hear people say that all the time. That would be the very last thing you would even look at. You look at these other things previously to that, but as I shared with you last week, and if you didn't hear last weekend's message, go online and listen to it because we talked about safe or unsafe people. Let me give you a list of what a safe church looks like, and maybe even a safe home, but this is what our church should look like. I think that we do pretty well with that. There's some things that we need to continue to work on, but listen to this. This is from the book Safe... uh, Safe people, and in the book, I I found these uh, qualities, the following qualities are safe churches. This is what it is. Grace is preached from the pulpit and is the foundation for how people are to be treated. That's that's God's unmerited favor. We love people unconditionally, right where they are. 
Truth is preached without compromise, but also without a spirit of law and judgment. They're not legalistic. You know what legalism means? You got to obey before God can accept you. That's wrong. God accepts you. Therefore, you will want to obey when you begin to understand that. Here's the next one. The church leaders are aware of their own weaknesses and need to grow and are open about their truth, pain, failings, and humanity. Instead of having it all together and being insulted from confrontation and change, they're in the process of healing and opening up to their own safe people's support and accountability. The church uses small groups to touch people's lives and sermons focus on community in the body of Christ as well as doctrine. The culture is one of forgiven sinners, not self-righteous religious Pharisees. We are forgiven sinners. That's you and I, not self-righteous religious Pharisees. The church, instead of being a self-contained unit and thinking it has all the answers, is networked into the community, availing itself of the input from other sources such as churches, professionals, and organizations. The teaching has a relational emphasis as well as a vertical one. Relationship between people is seen as part of spirituality as well as relationship with God. You can't tell me you have a love for God if you, if you have hatred and anger towards your brother. And that's what the first John goes completely through that. And that's what it's saying. That this way is just as spiritual as this way. I need to probably say it because if, when you listen online, they don't know what I'm talking about. So the, so the horizontal is just as important as the vertical relationship. Is that vertical? Yeah. I'm directionally challenged. It's like, uh, okay, whatever. The teaching sees... The teaching sees brokenness, struggle, and inability as normal parts of the sanctification process. Brokenness, struggle, and inability. Brokenness, struggle, and inability. You can't live this Christian life. You're broken. And the quicker you acknowledge that and recognize that, the quicker you're going to be on the track of of sanctification. We're all broken. We're all busted. We live in a fallen world. We are desperate for Jesus. We're fellow strugglers. So the teaching sees brokenness, struggle, and inability as, as normal parts of the sanctification process. Here's the last one. There are opportunities to serve, serve others through a variety of ministries. That's from Save People, Cloud, and Townsend. Now, let me just, just do a quick plug here real quick. If you've never gone through the game of life, I teach the game of life. I absolutely love the class. And this is your church home. You need to come through this group. It's a eight-week class, two hours on Tuesday nights. It kicks off on September the 15th. This will not only help you to understand a little bit more of what Desert Breeze is about, but you're really going to understand the gospel even more clearly because I really talk a lot about the gospel. Number eight, disobedience and idolatrous view, an idolatrous view of God will cause us to suffer from the curse of restlessness and alienation. That's exactly what the Danites are experiencing. Chapter 18, verse 1. See, when we disobey, we're, we're trampling on God's love and wisdom. And, and, and we're going to all disobey, but, but we, we have to make those course corrections. We keep coming back to him. Listen to me. Everybody look up here. This is from St. Augustine from his confessions. Your heart will forever be restless. Your heart will forever be restless until you find your rest in him. He's the land of milk and honey, strength and satisfaction. He's the fullness of life that we all so desperately need. The Danites are just thinking they can find it out there on their own and they're gonna make up their own religion. 
Disobedience and idolatrous view of God will cause us to suffer from the curse of restlessness and alienation. Number nine, a heart sold out for God gives us meaning, hope, and love that transcend the suffering and losses of life, increasing infinitely and eternally at death. Chapter 18, verse 24, remember what Micah said? You took my gods. You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away. And what do I have left? See, Every one of us is a worshiper. The only question is, who or what is the thing we look to for ultimate meaning, hope, and love? What is it that you're looking for for ultimate meaning, hope, and love? You're looking to something. You can't help but look to something. If it's not the true and living God, someone can take your God. They're gonna take your God from you. Only the true and living God is the God that can never be taken from us. What is the thing in which, about which, if it were taken away from you, you would say, you took my God. What else do I have? Where can I go in life now? I have nothing. There's only one God who will never be taken away from us. He is the one whom we can say with Peter, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, John 6, 30, John 6, 68, and along with Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain, Philippians 121. Here's the last point. We're almost finished. God has no grandchildren. Every individual must know God intellectually and experientially, growing deeper and deeper into the gospel. Deeper and deeper into the gospel. It is shocking that the Levite who will compromise on everything except his own interest is the descendant of Moses. And here's the crazy thing is that we're living right now where we see that one generation knows the gospel, the next one kind of assumes it, the third one denies it. We're seeing that happen in the church world here in America today because, because most people don't really know the gospel, nor are they living it out, nor are they passing it on to the next generation. And that's what happened here. We need to eat, sleep, and drink the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life but they are the A to Z. You never grow beyond the gospel, you grow deeper in the gospel. How do you know that you're growing deeper in the gospel? This is how you know, is that there's this understanding. There's this deep understanding of your dire condition apart from Christ. You begin to understand more clearly how lost you are and how big the debt is, but you also begin to understand more than ever before God's amazing grace, the magnitude of his provision. And this is what it'll create within you the more you understand those two things, your sinfulness and his grace to redeem you. You will have this indescribable and indestructible joy. See, and that's, that's when, you, when you really look at the gospel and you understand the gospel, I'll tell you, what, I've been doing this for a long time and the gospel has never been sweeter to me. I mean, and I'm, as I'm diving deeper into the gospel and understanding who this God is and it's becoming more alive to my heart, you see, and that's, that's really what we want. The gospel awakens us to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done that ruins you for anything else. I mean, you're wrecked. You just go, oh my goodness, I want more of him. I want to walk with him. And that's a heart for God. That's a heart for God. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So God, we want hearts for you. We want to just be ravished by your love. And as we kind of went through this, there's a lot here. Lord, speak to our hearts throughout this week. May all this stuff resonate in our lives. We don't just want to do right. We want to, we want to be right. We want to have hearts that are really conscientious of why we do what we do. We want to do those things for your glory. 
We don't want to be motivated and restrained by fear and pride. We want to have that supernaturally transformed heart through your love. We want to be all about you. So God, continue to speak to us through your grace and truth, transforming our lives. May we have true worship and have that heart experience based on the objective truth that changes everything about us. Reshape us. May we not reshape you. May we have this healthy perspective of you, God, that you're a holy God and yet you're a loving God. And may we understand, God, that we're not here to get you to, to somehow do what we want you to do, but we're here to serve you. May we take up our crosses and follow you, and may we realize that whatever we give up to follow you, oh my goodness, they're nothing compared to what we, what we gain in you. And so, Lord, those that maybe are yet to really commit to a local church family, Lord, work on their hearts. May they do that. May we become a part of a healthy local church family. Lord, may you begin to calm the restlessness in our soul as we seek you with all of our heart. May we be sold out to you, giving us meaning, hope, and love that transcends all suffering and losses. God, may we know you intellectually, experientially, growing deeper and deeper into the gospel each and every day for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.